My name is Betty, and I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. Uh, as Bo said, I was introduced to this program in 1978. And uh, they used to call us old timers, but now we're seasoned members. Um, and as he also stated, Bobby is my second alcoholic. So, you know, we thank God for those little moments when, with things that we can deal with, because when he was out there drinking, I was not in his life. So those are one of those blessed moments for me. But I, you know, I had my own moments with the alcoholic that brought me to the rooms of Al-Anon. I am the mother of, the daughter of, the sister of, someone whose life has been affected by the disease of alcoholism. And Al-Anon years ago used to have a statement that said, you don't have to drink to suffer from the disease of alcoholism. And I thought about that. And you know, and we that are the significant others of the people with this disease, we go through the same things they go through, we just don't drink. And we think of a lot of crazy things to do. And some of you need to be blessed that some of us are in Al-Anon. <laughs> because you know, without this program, I would not be standing here before you. Um, my first alcoholic, he was my high school sweetheart. I met him when I was about 15, 16 years old. And I was just in awe of him. And you know, you alcoholics have a way of attracting people. And you know, you just walk a certain way, you look a certain way. And when the nice, quiet guys would come and try and talk to me, I was like, nah. But I, you know, I spotted that alcoholic out of the corner of my eye and I didn't know. I didn't know. And he was just, you know, he was everything. He was popular, he was exciting. And here I am, this nice, quiet, shy person. And my mother got pregnant with me when she was probably 16 or 17 years old. And back then, uh, you did not get pregnant and you weren't married because it was like a blemish to the family. My grandmother got together with uh, my father's parents and there was a wedding. But you know, my dad was not really there for me. He was just a name on my birth certificate. And uh, I could count the times on one hand when he was involved in my life. And before I got to the rooms of Al-Anon and after I came in, I realized that my dad wasn't out. And uh, like I said, he was never there for me. Uh, my mom had a total of um, children. I have two, two brothers and me, and then I have another brother from a second marriage, my mom. Oh, and when he would call me and he would talk about when I was a baby, nine months old and stuff, for some reason, I listened to him. I don't know why. I guess that was God doing for me what I And when I came into this program, you know, after getting involved with that first alcoholic, and we got married, and at that time, Vietnam was going on, and he decided that he was going to go to the and he was going to do his basic training. And, you know, let me just back up a little. Uh, he sent me a letter asking for my hand in marriage when he went away, you know, for basic training. And he sent my mom a letter asking for my hand in marriage. And I just thought, oh, isn't that so romantic, you know, for him to do something. And uh, he sent me money to buy a ring, and I did that too. Um, I knew something was wrong with that husband, but I didn't know what it was. Because back in those days, you know, alcoholism wasn't um, brought out like it is today. You know, there was no reality shows. Uh, you know, and when you turn on the TV now, you see all kind of things going on with the reality shows. You see, you know, the celebrities and rehab and 
you see the parents dealing with this disease. There's another show that's on talking about that. And I just, you know, I look at those shows and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I, I know how those people feelism. Because alcoholism is about, and not only to the alcohols, and getting involved with this person and not seeing or see me. I focused mainly on, and I didn't know what was wrong. And um, he didn't want to get a job right away. He said, you know, I've seen a lot, and he probably had. And I, he's for that first month, that, and did some other stuff. And I just watched him, and I was working at the time, and he wanted to go out and party. And you know, I had no problem with that, but when the bars closed, I was ready to go home. And uh, he wanted to go to After Hour joint. And I'm like, why? Why would you want to do that? I mean, we've been in this bar for about three or four hours. It's time to go home. But, you know, we went to the After Hour joints, and the After Hour joints that he chose to go to back then, um, they would pat you down, and they would have guns on you. And I'm thinking to myself, in here, I'm being pat down. And he's just sitting there, you know, going along with it. And I'm like, what is wrong Dan? And at that time, I didn't drive. And I had to, of course, you know, sit through all that with him. And I would get mad, go out to the car. I'd wake up at 6 in the morning, and he's still in there. And I'm like, uh, Angel. So right away, I signed up and got my driver's license. Because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to do that anymore. And when we would go to places like that, and he wouldn't want to come home, I would leave him. And of course, he'd get mad. I just, you know, dealt with what it was. Uh, out of that marriage, I had two children. And when I first got pregnant with my daughter, and I knew, I didn't really know if I wanted to have that child. I didn't really feel like this relationship. And, uh, you know, I had the child, and we worked through our issues and everything. And going through that craziness and things, if I could get him away from And I, again, I didn't know anything about house. And uh, at that time, we had a big house, and it had a, a big bar down in, down in the basement, big fireplace, beautiful home. And, I, and the people that he, and I didn't know that he associated with them. One of the uh, people that was really close to him, and he, um, he would come over our house, and he had this big, long Cadillac, painted this Cadillac with house paint. <laughs> and I'm thinking, why do you want to associate with him? I mean, cut the ties, move on. <laughs> you know, and he always had this paranoia about him, and this person was taken, you know, back in the day, for those of us know, those little black and blue pills that you would get for the doctor to, to diet, and he was taking those, and I was like, why are you buying So, you know, we went along with that, and just a lot of, you know, craziness on my part. And when it talked about my life being unmanageable, I didn't see the unmanageability. The only thing I saw that was unmanageable was him. And if he did what I needed him to do, to man up, that we would be okay. Um, at that time, you know, back and forth, the arguing and doing, you know, all sorts of crazy things. Because I remember uh, I had stopped going out with him because when I would go out with him and he would start drinking and if someone danced, then the argument would start, you know, where do you know him from? And I stopped doing that. And then, of course, that got his way so he could, you know, I'd be sitting at home and he'd start an argument because he wanted And Al-Anon, you know, Al-Anon puts labels on things for me that I didn't have answers to. And it also gave me the ability. And uh, doing this madness, I remember one time we had this car, and back in the day the cars had the uh, distributor wires. And uh, I would go out in the garage, I would take the distributor wire off the car so it wouldn't start. 
I said, okay, he'll stay home. And he'd go out there and he said, come back, Betty, the car's not working. I said, well, maybe it's, you know, but he figured out a way to make up his own little distributor wire to get the car started and off he went. And uh, my ex-husband, you know, the way he drank, it, wouldn't, it wasn't nothing for him to be gone two and three days. And here I am sitting, you know, wondering, you know, is he okay? Is he all right? And I remember I had a girlfriend. She, uh, she said when her person was bored. And I never thought about calling, you know, the morgue. I didn't think he was dead or anything, but I just, you know, knew. He. Um, and uh, my ex-husband, um, my son that I got pregnant with, one of those children that I thought was going to cure, because he kept saying, if I had a son, you know, and I would, you know, get myself together. So I remember, you know, the six months I'm trying to get pregnant, and when it didn't happen fast enough, I remember calling the hospital and saying, you know, I need uh, fertility something because this man, I'm, you know, I'm hearing in the back of my mind, if I have this son, he'll be okay. Well, I had the son. The son was about 10 pounds, and he wasn't even there at the hospital when the child was born. He was out somewhere drinking. And I remember when he came to see the baby, I could just smell the out. No. Um, and like Lois Wilson, I was the one that worked. My husband... He would get paid, and if he got paid on Thursday or Friday, that meant that he was gone. And also, you know, gone from the house and not going to work. And a lot of times, you know, back then when he didn't, and he had a good job, he worked at the steel. And, you know, being the wife that I am, before cell phones and before caller ID, um, I remember, you know, well, he's not home, well, let me call work and tell them that he's sick. And I didn't know where this man was. He could have been at work. And, you know, I'm trying to protect the job, so I'm calling work, letting him know, and, of course, he wasn't there. But, you know, he lost that job because, he, you know, he would get up and say he was going to work, and he wasn't going to work, and I think it was about a month later when I... And, of course, you know, back then I'm saying, well, maybe they're discriminating. And these are things that he, you know, telling me how they treated him at work, but, you know, and when I came into Al-Anon, you know, I realized that he had a problem. When he decided to do something about his drinking, that was, uh, came out and said that it was a And I, like I, I was working, and my company back then uh, would cover that, and you'd have a 28-day pay. So I don't know, you know, for whatever reasons, why he decided that he was going to. And when he said he was an alcoholic, and I was like, my picture of, of an alcoholic was somebody that was, you know, homeless. They wore those long brown coats. They had this little paper bag with the wine wrapped around it. And I said, no, we, we, we have a home. You know, we have children. And maybe it was something else. And I remember, maybe you need to call, you know, the Veterans Association because they have something to deal with. Maybe these problems that you're having dealing with be But that wasn't it. He was an alcoholic. And I remember when I went to that uh, aftercare, um, they would talk about, you know, the disease concept in the brain of the alcoholic. And, and I was like, oh, something's wrong with his <laughs> And I remember, you know, going to the library and getting this medical book, trying to figure it out. Now, what's the difference in his brain and my brain? You know, and I knew nothing about alcohol because I was a social drinker. And when I drank, you know, one was enough for me. And then if, I, if you got the feeling, it was like, oh, no, you know, I'll be out of control. But I didn't know that that one drink for that alcoholic, it starts the whole thing. So when he went to treatment, 
You know, I knew where he was at. I didn't have to worry about getting up in the morning, the car wasn't there, and the arguing, because when he drank, he would lose the car. And he would come home, and you know, he was immaculate when he went out. And back in the day when they had the big afros, and he dressed nice, he looked nice. But when he came home, he looked like something to catch. And I would say to him, well, where's the car? Oh, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Where is it? And all he could say was, well, I think I was on the freeway, and I remember the police pulling me over. And you know, back then when they pulled you over, you know, they just talked to you and let you go. They didn't give you a ticket or anything. And me and my mom, we would get into the car after he had gotten home, and I'd set him up in the chair and talk to him, and he was drunk, and he was falling and stuff, and he wanted And we would go out and look for the car, and we'd find the car. And you know, when I came into Al-Anon, and I thought about all those things that I did, that step two taught me. And I didn't feel when I came in here that I was insane, but when I, the things that I did, the things that, and the reaction that I had to that person. And, um, and it was fear that we have of the what if. Uh, fear, I understand. And my life was based on, I didn't know, and I also know fear is, uh, when he came out of that 28 day day from work, and uh, there were some people in, and back then you had to have a sponsor, you know, to get out of the 28-day program. He, you know, told me about AA and he had to go to meetings. And I said, meetings? Meetings? What? I mean, you went away for 28 days, aren't you well? <laughs> and he, you know, he said no. And I remember going to the open AA meetings with him and people up there sharing their experience and people are laughing. And I didn't understand it. And I was like, you know, then after a while, uh, when they would say something, I would, of course, you know, give them that little poke. You know, you need to listen to that. You know, that's what you did, you know. And they talked about, you know, the blackouts. And I said, well, maybe, you know, a lot of these things he said he didn't know, but I didn't believe that. I mean, you know, when you're calling me names, that's not, you know, when you're stealing money from me. And, and you know, in the house, we had these closets that had, and uh, in order for me to keep them from taking money out of my purse, I would take and lock my purse up next morning, you know, I get my purse out and I'm getting ready to go to work. And when I get to work, I'm looking there now, I lock my purse up. He couldn't get into the closet. So what happened to the money? And when he came into the program, he told me that he would take the door off the hinges and get into my purse and take my money. And I'm sitting there, you know, thinking, well, maybe I spent the money. You know, insane behavior again. Uh, and I, you know, after a while, and back then they used to have AA and Al-Anon meetings together, so I would go, go to the AA meetings with him, and one night he said, well, you need to go in that room for what? Well, that's the Al-Anon. And I remember going into that room and looking around at the people, and they probably were around the age I am now, and, you know, they had the, uh, the blue hair and the gray hair, and they were laughing, and they were talking about, you know, uh, their experience, strength, and hope. And I, you know, I really didn't feel like I belonged here. You know, just give me the information you need to give me so I can be on my way. And when they mentioned how long they had been here to make a career out of this, you know, just give me the information. You know, let me go. And for some reason, you know, I kept coming back because I could feel safe in that tower. I could hear these people share. I could hear these people laugh because I had, you know, I hadn't laughed. And I, you know, and I could be open because when you're dealing with this disease of alcoholism, you don't let other people know what's gone. I once had a, a girl that's a member of my home group today, 
and she didn't know why she was going through the glass. You know, and that's how this disease affects. And then we get that committee in our head where we sit there and we, you know, we plot and we plan and trying to manipulate. And uh, of course, you know, I didn't want to have alcohol in the home and I became one of those people on my soapbox, so we don't need alcohol in the home, you're an alcoholic. But I had to learn, you know, that life goes on. You know, it's there and I can't protect that I'm thinking that are causing his problems. And uh, with this disease, it because, you know, my husband was a mother, and I would find these numbers in his pocket. And he would always tell me, well, these women understand. And I was like, oh, they do, huh? And I heard a woman say that with the infidels, it's not about me, it's about me. It's something that he has to Because with this disease of alcoholism, uh, I would go to my Al-Anon meetings, and I would come home, and he had slips he was in and I didn't have to take ownership for those things. I just put this neon sign on his forehead and see it flashing, sick, sick, sick. And that kept my mouth shut. I didn't have to say anything. Um, with those two children, my oldest daughter, she went to Alateen. And I remember one day she, and when you have a home that's submitted in both programs. You know, you have Alateen and Alan things because, you know, you, you find out that you don't have to deal. Uh, my children, you know, they used to be, uh, they understood their father, but they didn't Because when I got angry when he was drunk and I would sit him in that chair, I thought they were upstairs. Uh, my daughter said one morning, she said, Mama, why are you talking to Daddy like that? And if we wanted to go somewhere or do something, I would always blame him when we come. But I could drive, and uh, so I had to stop using those. As, um, during this interim, like I said, my ex was in and out of the program. We were getting ready to go to our first international conference, and that was in 1980. Uh, and during that time, I think about, my husband was shot, and he was uh, paralyzed from the chest down. And I remember when I got that call that night, because I knew, you know, he was struggling, and I knew, you know, and uh, when I asked him what happened, he said, well, I think the guy was trying. And I remember when I got that call that night uh, about when the hospital was like maybe two minutes. And he was lying in there, and I could just smell his pores. And he didn't know what had happened to him. I think it was probably about three or four days after that that he went down. Um, I would, you know, go to the hospital, and I would, and when it finally registered, you know, what happened to him, it was a big shock to him and a shock to us, too, all. Um, they sent him to the VA, and he went through the rehabilitation, and to take for granted, he had to learn how to dress in, to feed himself. And he, my daughter and my son, because my oldest daughter, she's just one of them, and, you know, she loved her dad. She was, and he could ride his wheelchair, you know, come to the house and stuff, and he would ask, you know, are you going to let me come? And I had, you know, to learn from him, uh, do what it is he needed to do. He got involved in wheelchair games. And they would, we would go out of town and stuff. But one of the things, we went to California one time, and the VFW was sponsoring the event. And when we got to the hotel and registered, and then of course, you know, they had the hospitality suite, and I went in that room, and I mean, it was just liquor all around the room. And, uh, you know, with Alana's help, I left it to, you know, let him do what he needed to do. I didn't have to, you know, try and block it or say, you know, you don't need to go there. He had to learn. And it's amazing um, that next morning, you know, 
you have guys that are in wheelchairs that have lost their wheelchairs because they were <laughs> or they get on the bus in their wheelchairs with a couple of drinks in their hand <laughs> and I'm like ah oh, you know because this disease it does not discriminate it doesn't discriminate it doesn't care what color your skin you have or who you are or how much money you have and you know it, it was just amazing I mean how can you lose a wheelchair I mean that's your you know your way of transportation of getting around but they did and you know going through all this interim and everything and for a while he was sober for a while he was but he started back to drinking from that wheelchair and he had got a motorized van and he would go to the bar in his wheelchair and a lot of people in the program they were like well how's he doing that I said well he gets in the van he drives he has something to get out and he goes into the bar and one guy said he saw him you know driving the van down the street and the van is going crooked because he was drunk and you know he started back to doing the thing and he was gone two and three days, same thing, you know, and sometime I would get up and go come out to the, uh, go to work. And there he is, I don't know how long he had been there, but he was caught up in this, in this that would lift him up and down to get out. And the lift was here and he's hanging over there and the chair was, I was like, oh my God, how long have you been this way? And yeah, I would help him, you know, go back into the house and it was, you know, and I'd go on to work because I had learned that in Al-Anon. I had learned, you know, it's okay for Medi. And I had learned I had choices in Al-Anon, you know, and when you tell somebody you have choices, I was like, oh, I did. And, you know, the choices that are made were not based really on some of that he did because I learned Al-Anon is a program. Al-Anon is something that it doesn't say I have to stay in this relationship. It just says I have to become the work on you know, those 12 steps, and when you get to that fourth and that fifth step, and you have to take your own inventory, you have to look at you. And it's so easy when I had old timers say, you know, you're pointing a finger at somebody, how many are pointing? And I had to look at the part that I played, not only in, you know, that marriage, but in my life altogether. Uh, because, you know, we, we attract, and when you are unhealthy, you attract unhealthy people. So I had to work on, I had to get a sponsor, and I had to learn to share things. And my present sponsor today, I also have a co-sponsor, because my sponsor for me has to be someone that's active in the rooms of meetings, and for a while she was not attending. And I don't know if you guys have this down here, but you know, where I come from, we have a few people that feel that they have to interview questions, have a questionnaire, you know, and I just thought sponsorship was one thing. You know, and a lot of times people look at what it is you have as far as material things instead of the values that you have. And, you know, when I sponsor people, you know, I try to be as open. And if they're going through something that I have not been through, then I have to refer them to somebody else. You know, because when you sponsor somebody, you don't, we don't have the, all the answers all the time. And uh, when we are able to spot, you know, let them know there's somebody else that's been through that because I don't want to be sitting there when they're doing their fifth step and they're hearing something and I'm like, oh, you did? <laughs> you know, and I'm not here to judge anybody. And that's why, you know, for certain things. Um, I was thinking about, I've been listening to this lady named Ellen and I was telling Bo, you know, she has, and she talks about we, can do some things right. We're not always wrong. 
But she said, if we turn that over to God, he works it out so it comes out right for everybody. And, you know, and a lot of times I thought about that because a lot of my solutions did cause problems. And I had to, you know, look at that and deal with that. And, you know, like that fifth tradition states the purpose of what Al-Anon is, is to help family and friends. And the only requirement for you to be in an Al-Anon meeting is that you have a relative or friend that has that disease. And people don't realize until they come in, they're like, well, there's nobody immediately in my family right now. The people that raised them, a grand, then that light bulb goes off. Uh, we have a lot of people that are coming that they're dealing with. And I remember talking to one young lady, and she was telling me, well, he's not an alcoholic. He's and I said, but you still have the same problem, don't you? You know what I mean? He's taking your money. He's stealing things. And I said, so what's the difference? You can't glorify addiction with another addiction. And, you know, that's where we get in trouble. You know, we enable this person to death. I have a brother, and he's, and uh, when my mom was alive, this is like the fifth, and my mom was the biggest enabler that was, especially when it came, and when she tried to go to Al-Anon, she said, well, you know, that wasn't for me. She didn't want to work on herself. She wanted to keep it. Um, my brother, he has enough sense where when he got out of the service, uh, he only had a year in the service, but he was able to get disability. He worked for the post office, did not have the time you need to retire. He was able to get a retirement disability from the post office, so he was getting good money. But my mom, you know, she was always frantically, if he called her at 2, 3 in the morning, go. And my mother was in her 70s. And uh, when Bobby was talking about my mom calling him her uh, when I would talk to my mom and she would start telling me all this stuff she was doing, and I told her, I said, well, you know, you don't have to do that. And she looked, oh, I don't? I said, no. I said, they should be taking care of you. So we get into these little arguments and stuff, and I didn't want to argue with her about it. I mean, I know that's your child and you're going to keep doing, but yes, Bobby was her little angel because he was, and uh, my mom had gotten sick, and my mom was a nurse. And she always wanted her children to have better than what she had. And when she had gotten sick, you know, I'm thinking, you know, self. Because when I um, got diagnosed with breast cancer, during that time, um, when I was working, I used to go to the doctor at the end of the And this particular year, my doctor was sick, and I didn't have a doctor. And he gave me the name of a doctor, and I called him. And he called me back, and he said, uh, Betty, I saw something. He, you know, God's wheels were in action then because you were a breast cancer doctor. I saw the doctor within a couple of weeks. I had my surgery the following month. I went through my radiation, and I remember my mom, you know, looking at me. And I said, because God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. What would have happened had I not went and gotten that diagnosis and, you know, did what it is I needed to do. And I really, you know, didn't think. But then when my mom was going through what it was, um, she knew what brother to call. She had gotten sick one night and she called my uh, middle brother to come, you know. My middle brother took her to the hospital and while he was, they were in there, you know, going over her chart and everything, the doctor said to her, uh, what are you doing about your stomach cancer? And my brother, he looked at her, and he didn't know. 
but the addict knew what was going on. For two years, my brother had went to the hospital to the um, appointments with my mom, had talked to the doctor, but never said anything to us. And my brother, he called me and he said, Betty, did you? And I said, no, I didn't. And when they went to the, hop, to the doctor's appointments, my mom, that's when the doctor said, well, uh, I never saw you two before. It was another one that used to come. And my mom, as a result of that, my mom had gotten tired. You know, for all those years of her life, she had never really for herself or made time for herself. And she just gave up. And I remember, you know, when she got this, we found out what it was within, um, uh, she had enough sense, though, to, you know, leave certain amount in my other brother's name and not the addict's name. And when my mom died and me and my brother was, you know, making the plans for the funeral, and, you know, we had mentioned to my other two brothers that we may have to get money from them, I remember the addict coming to my house, knocking on the door, and he's saying, well, mom had an insurance policy. And I said, well, where is it? And I said, well, right now, James, we have to get her buried. And he said to me, I don't have money to put. And I looked at him and I said, but you have money. And I just told him, my daughter was over there, my oldest daughter, I said, you know what? And I'm working on trying that person because I know he has a disease. And, you know, as a result of that, now that my mom got to help them do what they need to do to keep them, you know, above water and everything he's going and I have another brother, you know, his wife had to, and you know, and sometimes when I drive past the cemetery, I, I say to my mom, I said, uh, are you looking down now and you see what's going on now? Because she was preventing all that. You know, when you're dealing with this disease and you have people and there's no consequences for the actions that they do, you know, eventually those consequences come. I have a son. And with that son, my son is probably about 250, uh, six feet six. And, um, you know, and he used to have these dreadlocks down to here, and I used to have to look up at him. And, you know, and my son, he was doing some things that he shouldn't have been doing also, and, you know, out there doing, living the certain life he shouldn't have been living. But he would always come to the house for Thanksgiving. And this particular Thanksgiving, I didn't get a call from him that he had overdosed and uh, I think she was probably kind of scared because I didn't know this young lady and I said you know I thanked her and she told me what hospital he was in and when I went to that hospital uh, he was sedated they had put him in a coma they had strapped him down and they were telling me it took like seven men to hold him down seeing things and uh, by Bobby being a counselor, when we talked to the uh, doctors, they, you know, they have these HIPAA laws now where they can't give out information and because he was over 21. But, you know, I kind of figured out what it was he was on. He was other things. And luckily, you know, God was there with him. And he came out of that coma and he got very religious and, you know, he started going to church. And of course, I wanted him to go to AACANA, one of the AAs, to help him. But, you know, God's doing for him what he can't do for himself. And I, you know, and I have to remember, my children are on loan to me. They're loaned to me, and they have a life. And, you know, we were talking last night about our children, and they have consequences that they, that they have to go to, and as parents, we don't want them to go through any consequences. We want, you know, to lighten that load. 
But then I have to think back, you know, when my mom was telling me not to marry that first alcoholic, you know, I just said, oh, she don't know what she's talking about. But you know, and sometimes, you know, God just sends those little angels to us, and sometimes we listen and sometimes we don't. And, uh, you know, with that, I, you know, I love my son today, and I pray for him. And if he comes and he asks me something, then I can share my experience, strength him. And he had went through a bad period with a uh, marriage, married somebody I did not approve of. But, you know, that's his life. And, you know, he had went through just a lot with that woman, and that woman carried a gun. And, of course, she was kind of tall. She wasn't big as mine. But she would, you know, try to aggravate him, and he would call me and Bobby, and he would say, uh, you know, she's doing this or she's saying that. And the only thought that came in my mind, you know, and she has a license to carry the gun. And I said, you know, remove yourself from that situation. You know, just walk away and come back later on, because she could have shot him and said it was self-defense. That's and I, one day he had called me, and he said that the uh, sheriff had came with him. So paints, uh, what is it, something to remove him from the home. And he had to, and he said, but Mark, because he has two children by her, uh, is, are you the only one here? And according to, you know, the warrant that they had to remove him from the home, they also had the children's names down too, that he couldn't come within a certain footage of the kids. The kids are running around playing. And I, you know, I went over there and I picked up. And I didn't say anything, you know, I didn't want to go through, I told you so. And I, you know, I just listened, and as a result of that, because it's not back like in the day when the police would come to your house, they'd take your significant other out, and they would come back later. No, they, you know, they have uh, these what they call domestic violence charges, so he had to go, you know, down to the... And uh, the minister that we have today, we were going to court, uh, he came down to court, and again, God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. The woman that the minister knew because their children had grew up together. And he also knew the magistrate that was over, you know, the case. And uh, my uh, son's ex-wife, she did not have an attorney. And she asked my uh, son's attorney, what should she do? And I said, well, I asked her to drop the charges. And she dropped the charges. And again, you know, God doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, because if he had had those type of charges, it would have made it hard for him to get a job. And it wasn't that he was beating her up or anything. It was just little things like, oh, he made some lemonade and something was in it. But you know, being in the program of Al-Anon, it has taught me to get my... When I got ready to retire, I didn't tell my children, and I had worked 40 years of my life. And I had, you know, I had a good pension, I had good benefits, and I put in because things at work, because, you know, we fight change sometimes, and the things that were happening at work I didn't agree with, and I just had to pray, and I had to ask God, you know, to do for me myself. But sometimes we can just get too lax and come, and then God, you know, shakes us and said, you know, you don't have to do this, you, don't, you know, you can do something else. And I put in my papers, and the um, young guy that was my boss at that time, he was only like 24 years old, and of course he's got this five-year plan where he's a president and everything. And, uh, you know, I remember him. He was really giving me a hard time, and I had to really say that serenity prayer and really say my prayers and put on my Al-Anon armor when I went in. And when I decided to retire, uh, he came up to my desk the first time,
And then at 4.30, when I was packing my things up to leave, he came back again. And he said, so you're really leaving. What are you going to do? I said, you know what? There's stuff for old people to do. I said, I can go to school. I can do what I wanted to do. And I said, you know what? My, my career has ended. And it was only with this program that I was able to do And, you know, uh, earlier we were talking about the changes that are happening in the Allen. And by me being a seasoned member, I need to suit up and show up. I need to be there when that new person comes through that door. That's important to me to be there. So there may be 45 minutes earlier than when the meeting starts. And when I talk to new people, I try to share my experience, strength, and hope and let them know that it does get better. And I also have to let them know about those steps. I have to let them know about the traditions and when I say something or we're discussing something in my group, I say, you go in that book and you read it for yourself. It's not what Betty says, it's within that book that governs this. There's another part to this Al-Anon program that's called service, and a lot of our groups don't want to get involved in service. And you know, a lot of the old timers are dying off, and I try and let them know there's more to just this meeting, or you go to certain meetings and they'll say, Oh, we don't need a group representative. We're fine. We're doing okay. And I said, but you're not doing that you need to know about and you need to become involved in because I'm not going to be here. And that's important to me to keep those doors open. And it's important for me to let that newcomer come. Uh, we have a lot of members that we, well, the new term now is dual members, but they used to be double winners from the AA program. And I used to just be in awe when they would come in there and they're talking about their alcoholic. And I'm like, but aren't you an alcoholic? Well, they're not listening to me. And I said, well, were you listening to us when we were trying to talk to you? The same concept. And when you come into the Al-Anon rooms and if you're from the other program, you have to start working those, out those steps over again. Even though you've worked them in AA, you also need to work them in Al-Anon. And you also need to get you an Al-Anon. Those are things that are, you know, really important to me to let people know that. And keep coming back. Just keep coming back. And, you know, we tell new people when they come in, you know, come to six consecutive meetings and not necessarily here, but get to a meeting. Take somebody's number, you know, make that call. So like my sponsor today, she says, you know, if you're hurting, we don't know that you're hurting unless you're willing to reach out and let us know that. You know, we are as sick as our secrets. And I had to think about that. And when you're sharing things with somebody, you know, to let them know, you know, where you, you come from, what you went through. Because sometimes when people come in and they see us and we're laughing and we're dressed a certain way and they think we have arrived. But you know, that old timer that is there may be suffering just like that new person that's coming through those doors. You know, the older I get, we go to, through different things in life. Yes, I have a program. Yes, I have people that I can connect to. But, but there are some times, you know, when I have issues that I kind of hurt through. And I remember reading in this book, hurt people hurt people. And when we're going through that hurt, we can decide how we're going to hurt. Are we going to hurt and quiet or that phone up and call somebody? That's the importance. Now, for me, I call my sponsor almost every other day, and there's a lady that's been in these rooms almost close to six, and she, you know, she has a lot of health problems, and I call and I check on her because she was very instrumental. When, 
And just because you don't see somebody, you know, pick up that phone and call that person and see what it is, you know, that they're going through. And when I call her, you know, we'll sit and we'll talk and reminisce about times and stuff. And, you know, and one of the things that she had said one time was hope. As long as they're alive, there's hope. And I held on to that when I was room, you know, that hope. Because I felt hopeless when I came in here. I felt like nobody would understand what it is I was through when I'm dealing with this disease. I used to have a girlfriend, and I just thought her marriage was just so nice because, you know, her husband would come and pick her up. He'd get out the car. He'd open the door. And at that time when I was married to that first alcoholic, I mean, it was an hour later, you know, if he came to pick me up. And I'm, you know, sitting there. You know how we just think, oh, he's going to come, and, you know, maybe I missed him before cell phones, okay? Two hours would pass, and he still hadn't came. I, you know, I had to get on the bus. But I remember me and this girlfriend, uh, we went to exercise. And her husband called me one time, and she said, he said, well, what exercise class do you go to? And I was thinking to myself. But he used to get, after she came home, he would go to the car and see how many miles she had driven. And sometimes the grass is not greener on the other side, and we seem to think that it is, but it isn't. And one of the quotes that I like out of our material, uh, it talks about fear knocked, fate answered, and no one was there. And that, you know, lets me realize that when I have these fearful thoughts, I can call somebody and let them know what. And another page I like, we may never have the choices we would have if we were writing the script. You know, people in these rooms are examples to me. Going to conferences, going to workshops, and I was telling Bo, you know, I heard him, it's been a while ago, but his tapes have always been to me and helping me look at my program. And when I go to a conference or something and I see something that I need or I can share with my home group, you know, I'll take them back and let them know, you know, we, this is available. And, you know, I was always in awe and to see all these people dressed up and dancing and laughing and having fun without any alcohol, it just always amazed me. And when people get up here and share, you know, to truly share, their and, you know, back where I'm from, you know, they talk about, uh, one girl was talking about promises, because the AAs have promises. And there's a page in our Survival to Recovery. Some people, you know, put it as the Al-Anon promises. And I asked uh, one of our service people one time, I said, well, why do the AAs have promises and the Al-Anons don't? And she said, well, they had to tell them something so they could keep <laughs> But you know what? We have promises, too. You know, promises of a new life and a new freedom. And we don't, you know, and we don't regret our past. I don't regret the, our past. And there's a group of us that meet once a month, and we go over the steps. And somebody's homes, we try and rotate. And we were talking about, you know, all the stuff that we had went through to get here. And if you could go back and change just an inkling of that stuff, you may not be here today. You know, you may be in that other room. And I once heard this person, you know, she talked about, um, you know how you run into people and you haven't seen them? 
and they say, oh, I, I, I don't uh, go to Al-Anon anymore. And you say to them, well, why don't you go to Al-Anon anymore? Well, John died. And I'm like, you still don't know what the problem is. You are going to attract another person, maybe one worse. You need the program. You are the problem. And I had to really look at that. God has given me so many blessings. And, and you know, you guys have really been wonderful to me. And, and I want to close with, you know, a story that I heard from and how you work this program. And a lot of us, you know, we come to meetings, we hem and we haw, and we complain. But we don't want to work the steps. We just want to come to the meeting. We want to do the hee-hee song, which is he did this, he did that. And that's not what we do in Al-Anon. We don't talk about you guys in Al-Anon for a whole hour. You know, we either talk about something we need to do to work on ourselves. And when I chair a meeting, um, I look at the stuff that I need to look at. I want to get closer to that higher power that, that I choose to call God. I want that good orderly direction in my life. That's important to me. But she talked about, you know, the story that was in the Bible. Uh, Jesus saw this man sitting by the roadside. And Jesus said there was a, a, a water that was right across from him. And people were coming from miles around to this fountain for this water. Because when you take this water, it makes you whole. It makes you well again. But he just sat there. And Jesus said, well, why don't you go across there? And, uh, and that's what many of us do. We come in these rooms. We hem and we haw. We complain. But we don't want to work on ourselves. And that's what this program is about, working on ourselves, not the other person, ourselves. And you know, when I was going through my divorce, my oldest daughter, she was 17. And my son was 13. I goes to a psychiatrist. And uh, my daughter said to me, she said, Ma, I didn't know how long. And I said, but this is your father. And I thought, I'm doing the right thing, trying to keep the family together. But she even knew that that was not the right thing. And she knew the pain that I was going through. And then also, being in Al-Anon, a lot of people didn't understand why I, you know, got the divorce. And I said to them, you know what, I did my time. And they just saw this person in a wheelchair. And one of Bobby's sponsors that he talked about, he had worked to think that this guy is just this little invalid person and he's not capable of doing it. And he said, but when you get near him and they get a hold of you with that upper body strength, they can do a lot. But, you know, going through all to get here, it was well worth it. And another friend of mine said, you know, Al-Anon saves lives, not necessarily. Because Al-Anon, you find yourself in these rooms. You find who you are and what you are. And I want to thank you for listening. Thank you, you know, for asking us to come.